is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast today for episode 104 is Jungian analyst and instructor, Dr. Art Funkhauser in Bern, Switzerland. Born in 1940 in Evansville, Indiana, he grew up in Oklahoma City and went on to attend the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, known as MIT, where he earned a bachelor's degree in physics in 1962. While in graduate school at the University of Michigan, he became involved with early work in coherent optics and holography and earned a master's degree in science and engineering in 1967. After working in research at the National Bureau of Standards in Washington and as an instructor at the Learning Community in Honolulu and the Hellenic International School in Athens, he settled in Zurich and began training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute. During that time, he worked as a physicist at the Institute for Biomedical Technology and at the Photographic Institute at the ETHA, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, where he completed his doctoral work, earning a PhD in digital picture processing in 1979. After working for a time as a programmer in the ETHA's astronomy department, he graduated with a diploma in analytical psychology, the degree of a Jungian analyst, from the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich in 1981. His dissertation was on déjà vu and déjà rêve, the subjects of this episode. Since 1989, he has led a seminar in dream work at the Jung Institute Zurich, a lab course for analysts in training. He is an active member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams and has led workshops in dream work in Australia, Switzerland, and the United States. You can watch Dr. Funkhauser discuss his background and how he works with dreams in our previous interview in episode 103. Dr. Funkhauser is the originator and co-director of a research project into the effects of dream telling, supported by two grants from the Swiss National Science Foundation. He has published over 50 scientific papers and a book chapter in the fields of holography, parametry, dream research, and on the deja experience, which is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This video interview is being recorded on Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, through the magic of StreamYard. Dr. Funkhauser, thank you so much for joining us again today. You're very welcome. Happy to be here virtually. So last week you were my guest for episode 103, where we covered your very interesting background. And we talked about dreams and how you work with dreams as a Jungian analyst and how you teach analysts in training at the Jung Institute. And in this episode, uh, which is part two of our series together, we will be discussing your research on what you call deja phenomena. Uh, it's also referred to as the deja experience, uh, a term coined by Vernon Nepe, who I hope we'll be discussing a little later on. And as I mentioned in the introduction, your thesis at the Jung Institute in Zurich was on deja vu. 
And there is actually a page on your website, Deja Experience Research, which is a slightly uh, revised and, and augmented version of your diploma dissertation. And I would like to right now for our viewers on YouTube, I'd like to bring up your website so that uh, the viewers can see what it looks like. It is huge. I thought my website was big. This website is enormous. And um, maybe you can talk us through a little bit about what's here. This is the main page, the welcome page. And it is deja-experience-research.org. Yes. Uh, because so many people just visit the website for a very short time, I've tried to summarize on this front page the main points that I hope they go away with. <laughs> um, there's more information uh, available, but uh, I and there's a little uh, poll to the on the right hand side where people can answer some basic questions about their experience. Here, this survey on the on the right here. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, beyond that, one just uh, just as you're doing, one uh, clicks on these uh, to get these menus to find out uh, additional information. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the page that I was just referring to, that's uh, a version of your thesis, is uh, next to home, the menu item history, uh, pop down menu, the first item is brief history, that's what I clicked on to get to this page. Mm -hmm. And is this the page you were referring to? About your, has information that was contained in your thesis? No. Um, no. Okay. Second. Uh huh. Oh, uh -uh. is this? I I've got a little notebook with a website open on it, but it's not the, the screen okay. is so small that it's not functioning correctly. Okay. But if you, if you go to home. Mm hmm. Um. Look at notes, either one notes or frequently asked questions provides more information under home. Under home. Okay, the frequently asked question or notes. So yes. here is the notes page. And there, are, as you can see uh, in red, these are all links. And um, they open up other pages. And then the frequently asked questions what is deja vu? Uh, why do these experiences occur? Is there any correlation between stress anxiety and deja experiences? So on and on. Um, so I, I'm sure the, the listeners and the viewers would rather have you uh, tell us, discuss with us uh, your research. And where shall we begin? Uh, let's first define deja vu. Okay. Um, it was a term adopted in the latter part of the 19th century, and it's French, and it just means already seen. Um, because many people have this experience of being in a place or a situation where they feel suddenly 
extremely familiar with it, at the same time knowing that this is impossible. Mm -hmm. And it's that <clears throat> this conflict and bafflement in their minds that is typical of the this deja experience. I personally have a problem with the view part because such experiences um, are involving all of the senses, not just seeing. And I think it would be more proper to talk about deja vecu, which means already lived through mm -hmm. in some instances. And there's another form of deja experience in which people, persons are at a, a, a location and suddenly they know their way around and they don't know how they know their way around. And this uh, I prefer to call deja visite. Uh, you mentioned deja reve, that means they already dreamed. Mm -hmm. And people uh, explain their deja experiences based on dreams that they've had. So a, a very um, popular and very lengthy and thorough book on deja vu was written by Alan Brown. And do you know Dr. Brown? I've not I've not met him personally, but we correspond a fair amount. Mm -hmm. And it's Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, or he's retired now, but that's where he was. Mm -hmm. And so he points out that the difficulty in coming to to grips with the nature of these experiences is reflected in the diversity of definitions. Yes. And so you um, brought to my attention that deja vu is only one kind of version of this phenomena. Mm -hmm. And in, in reading up to, to do this interview with you, I realized, uh, because I have a very strong interest in this topic, I realized that what I exper the experiences I had as a child were deja reve which means already dreamt. And yes, I've had deja vu experiences, but I have had situations and it they still occur, but some very profound ones happened when I was a child where I was just living my life, minding my own business and, you know, not having any any major not in any major uh, situation, but just in, in everyday life, I guess we would say. Uh, and I'd stop and say, I dreamt this. Hmm. Now, it wasn't a precognitive dream. It wasn't about uh, an event. It was just what what I was seeing and, and what I was going through. And it would stop me in my tracks. And I've never understood what's what's underneath that. And today here in talking about deja vu and the deja various forms of the experience, I would like to look at this from a Jungian point of view and, and hear what you have to say. So what, what is the difference then between a deja vu and a deja reve? How do they differ? Um, well, a déjà vu could be a déjà rêve. Okay. But not all déjà vu 
experience or so let's say deja experiences are based or come from dreams but some do in my research it turned out about 30 percent of the people who responded to the survey i did said that they they felt that there's there's were coming from dreams that they'd had so as an as a jungian analyst who has been working with dreams for decades how do you see um let's just use my experience as an example how do you how would you see that analytically that that i'm in the grocery store and i where I, I I wanted to talk about this a little later, where I actually that's my latest deja vu experience. But I think I saw this. I've been here in a dream. And how would you look at that analytically? Um, the the <laughs> I get I, we didn't talk about it last time, but but Jung had the theory of synchronicities. Uh, what he, uh, his term for meaningful coincidences. And one is tempted to say that a deja experience is, is a synchronicity, but it's uh, very seldom, if ever, does it involve something meaningful. <laughs> that is to say, one is, that's part of the bafflement. Why this? Why now? Why here? Why in this situation? Because it tends to, and I'm being a bit guarded because actually I would say it always hmm. uh, is happens in situations that are utterly banal. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it makes it very difficult to 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 treat analytically because there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason why it happened in this particular place, time, situation. Mm -hmm. If my unconscious was giving me some kind of clues about what was coming up, I would expect that I would have a, a, a deja experience around the birth of my first child or or passing an important exam or getting an important diploma or something like that. But no, never. And I've given talks about deja vu all over, as you mentioned in the beginning. I always ask, has anyone here ever had a deja experience which was connected with something important? And no. No. It seems deja experiences avoid uh, emotional uh, uh, times in our life. Why that is, we don't know. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you believe or feel that this has to do with memory. And we need to bring up a lot of possibilities because it's kind of um, disheartening to realize that no one's really figured this out yet. No. No. And so is this an issue of memory? Let's take them one by one. <laughs> um, do you mind if I show people what the book looks like? Oh, please do. Um. I have it. Okay. The Deja Vu Experience. Yes, that's what I was referencing earlier. That's uh, Dr. Alan S. Brown's book. And I will have a link to all the books that we mentioned here today in the show notes at speakingofyoung.com. 
in there he has six chapters devoted to all the explanations that have been put forward. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that many of them could be true. <laughs> it all depends on which form you experience. And I could well imagine that different people even having the same experience have a different reason that they that it's occurring we we there's a tendency to want to have a one size that fits all yeah. things and this just is not possible with deja experiences mm -hmm. there so is a section of well be, sorry there may well be mm -hmm. uh, instances where memory is it's a glitch in memory the, the early, one of the earliest explanations was put forward by Sir Arthur Viggen in his book on uh, what's his title? Just a second. Duality, duality of the mind. Sorry, I'm not there. That's a beautiful book. And how do I spell his last name? It's a reprint, actually. W i g a n. Yes. He went to a, he was a medical doctor. He went to the funeral of Princess Charlotte, who was being buried in St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. Mm -hmm. And while he had been, uh, it was a long journey to get there, and, he, and he'd been up all night and hadn't had anything to eat, and he was very tired. And while he was there um, standing in this funeral ceremony, he suddenly had this impression that he had been there before, and he even knew what, what words were going to be said. And he told this to the guy standing next to him that he knew, and, that's, and he relates that in this book. Mm -hmm. And he, he came up with the theory that uh, deja vu could be uh, explained based on the hemispheres of the brain that one hemisphere uh, is taking in the perception, but the, but the, the is, and the other hemisphere is getting it later. And when it gets it, the first one says, but I already know that. Yep. <laughs> and, and so it's a delay between the two hemispheres. He explains it that way. And that's why he called the, the book, The Duality of the Mind. It's mm. all about two hemispheres of the brain. And this in 1844. Um, that, that, uh, that's plausible, isn't it? Well, all of these explanations are possible. Yeah. Spoken like a true Jungian. Okay. Um, the, on the other hand, the ones which involve precognitive knowledge, where you yeah. know what's going to happen, and it all happens exactly the way you know you know it's going to, in in unbelievable detail. That that would one would be hard to explain with with as a memory glitch. Mm, that's a good point, right? So I am. Mm -hmm. There is what I prefer to call anomal anomalous familiarity. That is, when something feels familiar, but you don't know exactly why. Mm -hmm. And very, this has also often been called deja vu, but I I don't think it should be. I think that muddies muddies the the water, uh, and these could easily be explained on, uh, based on things that you you experienced years ago, 
and had forgotten and now something triggers that memory in this yeah situation. yeah and that's being investigated uh, there are experiments going on but sadly in my view they they're saying they're investigating deja vu and i don't think that's what they're investigating <laughs> okay maybe that is like with other terms that's the term that everybody knows and that's why i used it for this episode uh, if I thought about titling it uh, the Deja Experience, and then I thought people might not know what that is. But right. it seems like everybody knows the term Deja Vu. and um, But technically, that means already seen. Yeah. So the, as an example, um, I was in the grocery store a few weeks ago. Now, I go to this grocery store every week. And mm -hmm. I've been going to it for many, many years. Same grocery store. And I like to go to the self-checkout. I like to scan my own groceries because I like to bag my own groceries. I'm very specific with, with um, how I put them together and what items I put together. Anyway. And you can reuse the same bag. There you go. <laughs> right. And recently, I'd say within the past few years, uh, they remodeled the self-checkout area. And it, this is a humongous grocery store here in Chicago. And I'd say there's maybe 10 to 12 self-checkout stations. Okay. And so I don't always go to the same one. I was at the self-checkout, I was scanning my groceries, and I suddenly had this overwhelming feeling. It was very visual. I was facing the, the terminal there. And now I don't know if it's because of the movie that I said, whoa, I think I've been saying, whoa, every time I had one, but who knows? <laughs> and I just, I, I mean, I was by myself. I said, whoa, I mean, just there are people everywhere. It's a very crowded grocery store. I said, whoa, deja vu. Of course, nobody's paying any attention to me, but it made me realize when I was preparing for this episode that when that happens, I feel like I'm flooded with a, a physical sensation where I almost get a little lightheaded. Mm -hmm. And now I've been to that grocery store many, many times over many, many years have I been to that specific self-checkout self before? Probably. But I remember the way I was facing it and just looking at what was above the terminal. And it's not that it looked familiar or not familiar. It's the whole thing, the whole thing that I had experienced it before. So calling it deja vu because it was visual but now is there something i'm looking through the list here deja vu an already lived through experience how is that different from from deja vu so let's say to use the matrix as an example that famous scene where Neo says, whoa, deja vu, it's because he sees something repeat. He sees a black cat walk by, then he sees the same black cat walk by. Right. 
So that's, it wasn't something that he thought he had experienced before. It was something he, he thought he had seen before. Right. So how does my, my experience of, I've already lived through this, this exact moment. Yes, of course, I've been to this grocery store many times. Yes, of course, I've scanned my own groceries. But this exact moment, what I was looking at, the bubble gum or whatever it was above the terminal, and just all the colors and everything around me, I thought, whoa. Mm -hmm. So so this is one form of... uh, Deja experience in which you were particularly focused on the perception, the visual perception. A person who maybe is less visual would have noticed more noticed the smells involved, or or the noises as well. It 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 can involve all your senses, and that would then make it more of a deja vu. Deja vu. Now, what about? I heard you mention something about deja vu in the blind. Uh, yes, deja. People who are blind have deja experiences and deja experience. So they've never seen before. It's not something that they've seen before. So it would be called something else. So it would be a deja vu if it involves several uh, perceptual abilities. And what do you know of what they experience? What well, just what they said, what they tell. Okay. Mm-hmm. That they've had this experience before, and it's not it's not visual. Not only they've had they they at the same time knowing that that's impossible, they couldn't possibly have had that experience before. I'd like to uh, bring up Young. And while I was getting ready for this interview, I searched the collected works. I have the complete digital edition, which I highly recommend. And you will find links to all of Jung's books on speaking of Jung's books page. Uh, I searched the collected works for the term deja vu and didn't come up with anything. I searched Letters Volume 1, Letters Volume 2, C.G. Jung Speaking, Nothing, and then finally, in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, I did find something. And I want to read it here, if I can find it, uh, in all of my copious notes here. Uh, He mentions um, what Deja Vu was originally called. And it's French. And uh, maybe you can say a couple things while I look for it. Here it is. Here it is. It's on page 254 of Memories, Dreams, Reflections. It's in chapter nine, Travels, in section three on Kenya and Uganda. Mm. And Jung is remembering the time when he took a train from Mombasa to Nairobi. And he woke up and he saw a brownish black figure standing motionless. Mm-hmm. leaning on a long spear, looking down at the train. And he said he was enchanted by this sight. He said it was a picture of something utterly alien and outside my experience. But on the other hand, a most intense 
sentiment du déjà vu, which translates as feeling of déjà vu. He said, I had the feeling that I had already experienced this moment and had always known this world, which was separated from me only by distance in time. How were you influenced at all by that or by Jung in your work on deja vu? Because as I had said earlier, I mentioned earlier that your thesis at the Jung Institute was on this topic. Yes. Um, could I could I go back and, and uh, a little bit about my history with deja vu? Yes, please. As a teenager, I had a couple of experiences. Uh, in one of them, I was with a bunch of my uh, friends from the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And we were, I think it was in the summertime when we were kind of bored. And we thought, okay, let's, let's do a new game. Let's, let's play hide and seek on bicycle, which we'd never done before. And so one of us uh, set out to, to go hide in the neighborhood. And after counting to 50 or whatever, the rest of us set out and fanned out to go through the neighborhood to see if we could find him. It didn't take long before we concluded this is impossible. There's so many places that one could hide. Mm -hmm. uh, so we gave up. And uh, we reassembled the group, and we were coming down the riding our bikes, coming down the street. And I knew, I mean, it, it is a fact that on this street, if you go a little bit further and take a right turn, you'll see the yard of my house where I lived. Uh, but we hadn't got that far yet. We were still on this street. But suddenly, I had this deja experience that I knew that we were going to continue to that corner. We were going to, we were going to turn that corner and we were going to see this fellow that we had been hunting for laying his bicycle down in the front yard of my house. Uh, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. It was just exactly like I knew was going to happen. That was my, probably my most, one of my most uh, intense Deja experiences. Mm -hmm and left me completely baffled because I, I, I was a science major in high school and this was just not yeah. possible. Yeah. <laughs> and the other one um, that I like to tell, it, a friend and I, uh, Russell, if you're listening, it was you and me, <laughs> uh, we became uh, ping pong addicts. Mm. We and and uh, we found that the gym uh, was not being used. Uh, so after school, he and I would set up a ping pong table in the middle of this gym. That meant we had enormous space around mm -hmm. us, and we would practice every day. It was it was beautiful, wonderful. <laughs> until one day the coach came along and he said, guys, I have, sorry to tell you, but we need the gym for basketball practice. You're gonna to have to find someplace else. And we did uh, some searching around 
And in a nearby town where there's a college, we discovered they had a student union building. And in that student building, there was a room with a ping pong table in it. Mm. So after school, we got on our bikes and rode over there and started using that room. This room, though, I have to say, the table was in horrible condition. The students, whenever they missed a shot or something, would slam their paddles into the poor table and mm. it was dented. It was in a very odd uh, blue-green color that I've never seen before or since. Uh, the net was in terrible condition. And we had about one foot or a foot and a half behind the table. We had absolutely no room. Mm. We, we, we learned to play very close to the table. That was actually good training. One day, while I was, we were, we'd been there now maybe a month and a half, Oh, I forgot to say that the college students discovered that there were two upstart high school kids had taken over their ping pong room and they decided to challenge us. So we were taking on all comers <laughs> and we could beat most of them. <laughs> um, so after being there for a month and a half or two months, suddenly I was having a deja experience where I was seeing this as if, wow. Mm. And I remembered that I had dreamt this. Mm. In my dream, I was very confused. I was asking, where is this? What, what an unusual, who are these people? <laughs> and when it came true, I was hearing this little voice up inside was saying, oh, now I know where this is. Ah, oh, yeah. And wow. this, this, these kinds of experiences um, knock me off my feet yeah. and, and cause me great consternation. And I, I started going around and asking people, do you have experiences like this? Mm -hmm. Nobody would admit to it. And I began to feel rather odd. And uh, mm, maybe I shouldn't be admitting I'm having these kinds oh, of experiences. Right in Oklahoma in that year and time. So it wasn't until much later when I was working at the Bureau of Standards and went to the National Institute of Health Library, uh, which is in Bethesda, um, I went in and asked, the, I told the librarian there about these experiences and he, and he said, oh, that's deja vu. <laughs> and I'd never heard that term before. Mm -hmm. So I started using the library to do some research on it and discovered that I wasn't the only one. Other people had this experience too. And, and there'd been some research done on it. And, and this was like a, a, a mind opener. It was wonderful. So part of my reason for one of my re interests in Jung was that he published things like synchronicity and uh, had made remarks about deja vu. And I said that, that prompted my coming, one of the things that prompted my interest in training at the Jung Institute. Ah. Long answer to your very simple question. But no, I, I like to hear the background and the backstory and yeah. That's so, mm -hmm. so was, do you think Jung was, 
was affected by that experience he had in Africa because that was relatively early on. I think it was in the 1920s, the early 1920s. And his later uh, research, I guess is the word, on his concept of synchronicity. Or, or is there any relation, I guess is what I'm asking, between deja experiences and synchronicity? Um, because of the influence of Richard Wel yeah. Wilhelm, mm -hmm. he learned about the I Ching and Chinese uh, philosophy and um, fortune-telling uh, based on the I Ching. And uh, he was so impressed with it that he uh, said that there is also uh, a dimension to our reality which our normal uh, normal reality that we learn in in school <laughs> um, doesn't take into account. And the I Ching, the, its accuracy in, in guiding people is based on this other, uh, which he called a-causal, meaning it's not, it's without, it's not, it's, sorry, it's without a cause and effect. It, there's another, another uh, dimension in our reality uh, which is involved with this. And this gave him then the, the, the idea of the meaningful coincidences, which he termed synchronicities, and saw deja vu as an, or deja experiences as another proof that, that there is more to our world than, than we normally uh, accept or recognize. Mm -hmm. uh, on your website, you mention Freud. Yes. And the trip that he made with his brother back in 1904, they went to Athens and they yeah. visited the Acropolis and he had an experience of something I'd like to ask you about. He called it derealization, yeah. as if what he was seeing was not real. And that really caught my attention because I had that experience. Um, I, I'd only spoken about it once and the woman i think uh i don't remember who i was asking she was a psychologist and um she didn't have much to say about it <laughs> it, it wasn't my analyst and i was in san francisco uh where i had been visiting frequently back then and I went to a part of town I had never been to before. Uh, I, I was I had the morning to myself and I went for a really long walk and I walked down to the financial district on a weekday and I was walking around with a cup of coffee and I was looking at buildings, the big tall skyscraper there, the, the tall buildings there in San Francisco. Uh, and I felt as though what I was looking at wasn't real. And it startled me because I'm used to being in big cities. I was born in New York City. I live in Chicago. I've been to Los Angeles a lot. I, I've never had that happen since then. Mm. And I would stand in front of a big building and look at it. And I felt like I was looking at a photo. Hmm. 
a picture and it, it did it, it, it startled me. I still, I still haven't figured that out. So what do you have to say about derealization? I've said the people I know who have experienced this, this experienced this mm -hmm. describe it as being like behind glass that they're viewing the world through mm. glass, that they're out of contact with it yeah uh, there there's been a lot of research done on this but not so much in in union uh, circles unfortunately that mm. I know um, it's as if the unconscious is concerned with something else and is just not wanting to connect up with what's yeah. out there. Why that is, is of course very individual, whatever mm. the individual is, has going on. Uh, I was wondering if it had to do perhaps with the anxiety I was experiencing. I was alone. It, I was in a part of town I had never been to before. These buildings were huge. I was oh. afraid of getting lost. Now that I think about it, you know, I was afraid of getting lost, not being able to find my way back. I mean, this was before smartphones. Okay. Yes. Okay. So I didn't have that uh, in my hand. And so perhaps the anxiety contributed to it. But I think you you bring up a really good point that there isn't a blanket explanation for every experience. And I just want to go back to something you held up uh, Dr. Brown's book, the Deja experience. And you said that he has six chapters of uh, ideas of what this could be. And you mention a lot of them, you go through a lot of them on your website, the website that I brought up earlier mm -hmm. on Deja research. So there are no blanket explanations. Uh, so who today is doing the work on this? Um, the most active person is uh, a lady in Colorado, McCleary, if I remember her, her last name correctly. But she's mainly concerned with deja, well, familiarity as a result of, uh, of um, memory difficulties mm -hmm. and she's doing designing experiments uh, with people uh, to, to like under I've, it's been a while since I've read her papers but but it's she one example would be that she puts people in a trance and shows them pictures and then later when they're out of trance, they, they, these pictures are mixed in with a bunch of other pictures and she's looking to see if people suddenly have this sense of recognition mm -hmm. uh, because they have been exposed to that picture and they, but don't remember that mm -hmm. and so now they and so in this way uh, she's trying to reproduce the, the de deja experience mm -hmm. but as far as I know from what I've read, I, th this this feeling of bafflement doesn't doesn't occur. Mm -hmm. So I prefer to think of her work as investigating anomalous familiarity rather than mm -hmm. the experience. Mm -hmm. 
And as you mentioned, this can't exactly be tested in a laboratory setting. Uh, just like with dreams, you can't yeah. force someone to have a dream and then study it. So well, it kind of... There, there's research which you can influence what people are dreaming uh, to some extent. Mm -hmm. If you play soft music, particular music, it could be that the person reports a dream which somehow contained that music. Um, really? Not always. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not dependable, but it does it does happen at some people. Um, so, but it, but basically, yes, you you cannot you cannot uh, tell people what to dream about and then they do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So these experiences are are difficult to uh, study, and yeah. I'd like to know. So your thesis was published in in submitted in 1981, and you point out that you had 155 references in that dissertation. Yes. Yeah. So how far back does this go? What were some of the first mentions of this experience? Uh, the first mention in modern times was uh, in 1815 by uh, Sir Walter Scott mm. in a book, a, fic a novel that he wrote called Guy Mannering. I, I have it here. Guy Mannering. Mm -hmm. And that's a novel. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he mentions it how? Uh, let me see if I can read the passage to you. Because I love it. <laughs> okay. It's about a young uh, fellow who was kidnapped by pirates when he was a boy. Oh. So he has no memory of, of where he grew up. But uh, now he's come back to, to Scotland. Uh, as a young man, mm -hmm. and he just happens to to visit the place where he had grown up, not knowing that that's the place. And then, then uh, he writes or says, how often do we find ourselves in a society we have never before met and yet feel impressed with a mysterious and ill-defined consciousness that neither the scene, the speakers, nor the subject are entirely new. Mm. Nay, feel as if we could anticipate, anticipate that part of the conversation which has not yet taken place. It is even so with me while I gaze upon that ruin. The, the house now where he had been, where he grew up was, was a ruin nor can I divest, divest myself of the idea that these massive towers and that dark gateway retiring through its deep vaulted and ribbed arches and dimly lighted mm. can be that they have been familiar to me in infancy and so on. So he, he manages to, to bring out this feeling but of course, he, the, the term deja vu wasn't used until 1876 or so. So this is his, his way of getting at it. Another f 
famous quotation is the one from um, Charles Dickens, David Copperfield. Ah, uh, yeah. And he said there, we have all some experience of a feeling that comes over us occasionally of what we are saying and doing having been said and done before in a remote time of our having been surrounded dim ages ago by the same faces, objects and circumstances of our knowing perfectly what will be said next as if we suddenly remembered it. So where do you see the the idea of reincarnation fitting into this? Um, the, <laughs> yeah. What I'm about to say was already pointed out by, by a fellow named Feuchtershaben uh, in Germany in 18-something, that it's not possible that in, a, that in a past life we were sitting and talking, wearing the same clothes that we have now on. <laughs> um, so deja vécu cannot be explained by reincarnation. Yeah. Deja visite, on the other hand, could be explained by reincarnation. You go to a place and you know your way around and you don't know how it is that you know that, but you do, you know what's inside a building without going there. If, the, if, if that building existed, say in a previous generation, then mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that sure. was, but that's, that's, that's one reason for making this distinction between deja vecu and deja visita. Right. It's important to, to make those distinctions, yeah. Yeah. But with déjà visité, I've never experienced that. Have you? No. No. When I heard about that, I thought, well, I mean, I had I've I've watched a lot of television in my life. I had a television in my bedroom as a very young child. Mm. Seen a lot of movies. Uh and now with the internet, we can see the whole world. Mm. So there's a lot of information in there, mm. in our memories, in our brains. And so to me, that could explain that. It could. Well, except for the detail involved. But yes, for, for déjà visite, yes. Mm. But not déjà vécu. Mm -hmm. You mentioned... Uh, Arthur Wigan, and I'm just scrolling through here. There have been, it seems like, uh, a lot of mentions throughout history. The Roman poet Ovid uh, supposedly described the phenomena. St. No. Augustine, no? It's debatable. You have to already. You have to already think he's talking about deja vu, and then you can kind of see it in what he wrote. Okay, <laughs> about somebody visiting a temple and seeing a shield hanging on the wall and saying, "Oh, I recognize that shield in a previous lifetime. I I wore that shield in a previous incarnation, or something like that." Yeah, that's not exactly deja vu. So, right, and, then, and there's the quote from Saint Augustine. Yeah, I was going to mention that. 
where, where he, he has the idea that these kinds of impressions might mislead Christians into thinking of reincarnation. So mm. this obviously is, is a trick of the devil to confuse Christians and get them off the path. <laughs> that is one of the, uh, there was a true false thing that I saw on your website. Um, do you remember that about there were, four trues and three falses, or maybe the other way around. Do you know what no. I'm talking about? No, and one that of them, hasn't clicked yet. <laughs> one of them was the possibility that this was evil spirits. And I'd like to ask you as a Jungian analyst, how you see that, how you see the explanation that some people use that they are being influenced by demons or spirits. And, and it's because to me, the way I look at it, that it is a part of us, it is something in the unconscious. Yes. And so <laughs> you're like, yeah, all in a day. And uh, I hear so many frame it that it's something happening outside of them instead of this is happening internally. So is that so that we can accept it more readily or uh, not have to own it, not have to take responsibility for it? Yeah, well, yes. And then, then it's, uh, something that we can do something about, uh, have an exorcism or, or uh, uh, burn some sage, <laughs> clean the atmosphere. Um, even, I mean, with dream work, people almost always view the dream characters as being out there and not mm. something themselves. It's the same, same tendency, I would say. Um, but uh, they can be quite powerful, these voices, especially around two or three in the night if you're up, uh, when you're kind of tired and exhausted and then your defenses are down, and then all kinds of negative, uh, critical uh, things come into your head. You did that wrong, you missed that, you didn't do this right, and so on. And so I, it's very easy to, to think, oh, this is coming from outside. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just it found in my notes uh, the true-false thing that I mentioned uh, is on your website, uh, you do have a page titled Explanations for Deja Experiences. Okay, and now. there you list true and false categories. And uh, under true is past life. The universe repeats itself. We haven't mentioned that yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and also some people can see the future. And I don't want to gloss over the precognitive aspect to this. And just to finish this point, under false, demons, uh, mm -hmm. it's just something similar. For instance, that's why I brought up my example at the grocery store. I've been to that grocery store many times. I've been in the self-checkout. Maybe it was just similar. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think so because of that rush 
of right. It wasn't adrenaline. I don't know what it is that came over me and stunned me, and and it just there was an aura. Mm -hmm. I'd say around it. And then the uh, other two under the false category are some sort of organic malfunction in the body and the brain. And the last one is that the, the mind is playing tricks on us, which is, is kind of general. I don't even know what that means. Um, the, 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 you have to say the, the true false has to do with whether we are actually uh, experiencing something from, from the, the past. Um, and there are theories which say, yes, we are experiencing something from the past. And those are the true. It's true that we're visiting some, sorry, experiencing something from the past. Mm -hmm. And so, so reincarnation in that sense is true because it, it pauses that we're experiencing something from the past. Mm -hmm. And the, the glitch in the memory is false because it's saying, no, we're not experiencing something from the past. This is something happening just right now in mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. So I'm we not I'm not saying the theory is false. I'm saying it's only false because it doesn't uh, say that this is connected with with uh, a past life or something. I see. Okay. Thank you for for uh, sorting that out. Okay. I don't want to forget to ask you about precognition because your experience from childhood was precognitive. Yes. Yeah. What do you, how do you see that as an analyst, as Jungian analyst? How do you see precognition? Um, I, well, I have to believe it occurs. Mm -hmm. What it does for me as an analyst is to open, broaden my horizon to allow things which I would say in an academic setting would not be uh, recognized. Yeah. <laughs> um, people can come with, with their, what they're experiencing and I can in this way keep it, have an open mind. Uh, and say, okay, well, that's what you're experiencing. So maybe we we can talk about this. It's not auto automatically ruled off the table. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and precognition is one of those those things. It, it, since I had those experiences, I, I learned that our world is more wonderful, and there's a lot more inter some very interesting things going on which we don't normally. Um, recognize and things like telepathy or remote viewing uh, these things are being investigated now mm -hmm. and the research is actually excellent but uh, totally outside normal academic uh, let's say materialist point of view mm -hmm. I bring this up to you because I wanted to confirm that as a Jungian analyst, you're not going to dismiss these things as projections, complexes, no. are you? No. no. No, we we can ask that question. We can, uh, but rule but, that out. Would you say you would rule that out first? 
I would say that's one of the things that I, I would like to to look at the dreams of the person and see if, if there are complexes here that are that are uh, active and and um, but if it's a if somebody is saying they had a precognitive experience, I I I would just take that as saying okay, wonderful, <laughs> good. What did you learn from it? Uh, what did it you? What did, what what it was as meaningful in some way for you. That's a great point. Yeah. Was this meaningful for you? Mm -hmm. So have you had experiences like that after? I mean, as an adult? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Some, some, well, now it's been maybe 10, 15 years ago that I was visiting in England, uh, stayed in a bed of breakfast and we went upstairs to the room and the door of that room i knew i'd never mm -hmm. seen a door like that before oh. but they knew this one and uh no clue as to why uh, suddenly i had this intense familiarity with that door but i did and it's still in my mind mm -hmm. but but you're raising a, an interesting Point about deja experiences, they tend to be uh, more intense and more frequent when we're young, uh, which say between 15 and 25. And after that, they taper off as we enter adulthood. Why this is, we don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. And about uh, just going back to something we touched on in the previous episode, your involvement in the International Association for the Study of Dreams, mm -hmm. about precognitive dreams. Yes. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm just still curious about how, as a Jungian analyst, uh, you, you would, would you also so you would also analyze a dream like that as you would any other dream. And as far as an explanation as to how someone could know the future, the jury's still out on that, huh? Yes. And well, the, I, there's some, some wonderful examples of precognitive dreams, which really helped people warn them. Yeah. Um, get out of here because something really bad is going to happen. And some did and they saved, saved their lives. Um, the main thing I'm thinking about is the disaster that happened in Wales when this whole mountain of, um, what do you call what's when they, when they're mining for coal, they have outside all the stuff that they can't, use and it's uh, it formed a huge mountain and this and it rained for days and this whole thing collapsed on the village killing hundreds of people but many people had a dream in advance and said something horrible is going to happen get out and they did and they lived to tell about it the the question then becomes why did some people have these dreams and not others right we don't know mm -hmm. I think that that incident was depicted in the television series on Netflix called The Crown. They did an entire episode on that. Uh, if I can find it, I'll I will add it to the show notes. So I do have some more questions, um, but I 
don't want to forget to uh, ask you about Vernon Nepe and his work. I had mentioned him earlier. Mm -hmm. And when I looked him up, I found out something quite ironic, which is the fact that he was brought in from South Africa to be the director of a division of neuropsychiatry at the University of Washington mm -hmm. in the same year that I left the University of Washington, 1986. <laughs> so I just missed him. But what's ironic is that I left the University of Washington and transferred to a small Jesuit university in Cleveland called John Carroll University because they had a neuroscience department. So I could major in psychology and get a concentration in neuroscience and get a bachelor of science instead of bachelor of arts. So Dr. Nepe, I'm sorry I missed you. Uh, and do you know him? We have uh, corresponded. Uh, we've even spoken with each other on the telephone, uh, but I've, we've never met face to face. Mm -hmm. And what is the work he's doing? Your uh, interest in the work he's doing? Well, his main concern as near as, I mean, in his work, I think he's mainly concerned with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. uh, Vernon, if you're listening to this, uh, please correct me. <laughs> uh, but his work in Deja Vu uh, was some of the very uh, earliest modern work. His, his book was, well, based on his doctoral thesis, he published it later in 83 called the psychology of deja vu um so it was interesting that his his interest in work paralleled mine we both mm -hmm. at roughly the same time mm -hmm. and uh and he he and i both came up with the term deja reve <laughs> at the oh, same too. that's a is a almost synchronous <laughs> yes mm -hmm. He's got four books um, that I have helped a bit with editing of, uh, which are available. Uh, you can order them online. Uh, I'll find them and, and add them to the show notes. About Deja. Uh, good, yes. Yeah. And, and he was the one who coined the term Deja experience as the umbrella blanket term for all these uh, experiences that mm -hmm. people have. Mm -hmm. And has he has he uh, come to any conclusions? Uh, as to explanation or? Yeah. Or <laughs> well, because he's a psychiatrist and he's studying the brain, right? Yes. Uh, the best answer that I know to give is no. No. <laughs> he, he's like me. He's sort of aware of all the various explanations that are out there. Mm -hmm. but because it cannot be be reproduced in the lab, you, there's no definite um, one answer. No one answer. And uh, I also wanted to ask you um, about your work, and I don't know how to phrase this, your work in, your early work in holography. So yeah. you were working on and with holograms. And holography is the concept of how the whole is contained in every part. Yep. So I was wondering how holography fits into this or does it? 
well, there is the view of this whole reality is a simulation, like we're living in a hologram. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I just don't really bother with that one because it's, it begs the question, well, who designed this yeah. simulation? <laughs> and you get an infinite regress. We 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 could have talked about Dunn. He he ran into the same problem with day, with precognitive dreams. Who is Dunn? Uh, J. W. Dunn in England in the in the early nineteen hundreds wrote a book called the Experiment with Time, which was yeah. Quite tell a, us about that. He it was quite a sensation, and uh, J. B. Priestley was very heavily influenced by Dunn's theories and and included some of the conundrums that occur with, with precognitive knowledge in, in one or two of his plays that he, that he wrote. Um, Dunn, Dunn did experience, uh, experiments or uh, research on his own dreams and recorded his dreams and, and then noted the ones which were precognitive, mm -hmm. which later came true and published this in his book and um, the society of psychical research in london was was very impressed mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, dunn himself was an aeronautical engineer so he had a scientific background and appreciated the fact that pre precognition was outside the normal run of things <laughs> mm -hmm. so I also mentioned uh, holography because I wanted to mention uh, just very briefly uh, Michael Talbot, who wrote a book, book called The Holographic Universe. And there, I don't think there's enough time in this episode for me to get into this, uh, but uh, I just recently found an interview that he did uh, a year before his death in uh, his premature death in 1992. So I will provide a link to it in the show notes, but he speaks, Michael Talbot uh, speaks from a Jungian perspective and it is one of the most powerful interviews I've ever heard. No. And he said that we seem to respond more to the models of reality in our head than we do to what's out there. And that reminded me of how Jung said that the psychic reality is the real reality. Hmm. What's happening in the psyche is more real. Well, I don't know if he said more real or just as real as the external world. And I was wondering if you had any comment about that. I <laughs> I constantly remind people that dreams are experiences, <laughs> just like what we are having in, in our waking life. We're collecting experiences. And one can talk about an inner reality, if one will, because there uh, we have experiences <laughs> which can be meaningful and, and uh as a kind of, and we can gain knowledge about the outer reality through what we learn from the inner mm. point and perspective. Mm -hmm. A different kind of reality. We, we, 
doesn't follow our our normal waking logic very well. Mm-hmm. It's more metaphorical, mm-hmm. but it's still valuable. Mm-hmm. And Jung constantly made the point that everything that is new in the world first came out of somebody's unconscious who had the idea of, oh, we could do this. And people say they're thinking a lot of, when a lot of the time they're, they're being given ideas and somehow they don't ask the question, where did, where did these ideas come from? So I was wondering if there was anything we hadn't covered. Oh, I see something right here. Um, Just to circle back about your experience that you had, I heard you say that you think that experience was communication with your future self. Yes, in a way, yes. but not a communication that's easy to decipher. It begs the question, why? (laughs) This is the constant problem with with Deja experiences. Is my unconscious doing this? And then if it is, well, why? (laughs) Um, Or are these experiences just like a sporadic, like radioactive decay, just... um, uh, random things that are happening to us and our unconscious has to somehow cope with that. I don't know. So as we, as we wrap up here today, what I'm realizing is that we don't have answers, just lots of questions. And my final question to you is how do we then live? How do we get up every morning live our lives, get through the day, and repeat it all over again the next day, not knowing, not knowing who we are, how we're made up, where we came from, what we're doing here, and where we're going. How do we manage? What do we do? And we have these questions and they're they're fascinating to work on to to pay attention to. Um, it's not not a reason for for uh, throwing up the hands and saying, "Oh, I'll never understand," but rather, "Oh, look at look at this. This is this is interesting. Maybe I should learn more about this part of myself. This this tendency I have." Why does that make me angry, or why does that make me sad? And uh, and these are these are like little doors that you can open to your inside and, and find out mm. why and, and, we're in mm-hmm. that. Well, I do have one more question for you. Yeah. What is consciousness? Whoa. We don't have a good answer for that either. <laughs> the The big quandary is, is consciousness being produced by the brain 
or is the brain like a radio receiver uh, receiving consciousness and then transmitting us into the world? There's a huge split between two camps here. Those who say it's uh, a product of the brain and those who say no, the brain is just, if it's wor in working order, is, is transmitting our consciousness uh, to our minds. But I asked you that question uh, when we first spoke uh, during our pre-interview. Do you remember what you told me? No, <laughs> sorry. You said consciousness is basic. It's yeah. more basic than physical reality. Yes, that's my personal opinion, yes. Uh -huh. And what did you say is more basic, even more basic than that? Love. I think that consciousness is the gift. Would you say that again? Because you cut out a little bit. I say consciousness is a gift, a present to us that we can be grateful for. And out of consciousness, everything is, is, is even atoms, even electrons. It's all built out of consciousness. Energy is built out of consciousness. That's a wonderful place to leave this, something for us to ponder on. And before I read the outro, I would like to remind the listeners that in anticipation of the 75th anniversary of the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, uh, they have announced an international interdisciplinary three-day conference on the topic of emotions and its relevance for analytical psychology. And they're now accepting proposals for papers from all fields related to the study of emotion and its impact on culture, the inner world, creativity, healing, science, and politics. The submission deadline is this month, uh, February 28th, 2022. And there will be a link to uh, for more information in the show notes for this episode. This is episode 104 of Speaking of Jung. And Dr. Funkhauser, thank you so much for joining us today and for your willingness to join me in this uh, video experimentation uh, that we're doing here. And if you just uh, would uh, give us your final words, and then I'll read the outro. Uh, Laura, I, I've enjoyed this immensely, and, and I'm, I'm very happy for the chance to, to provide information to people. And uh, maybe in the comments to the video, they can give reactions, maybe relate experiences that, experiences that they've had. Yes, we'd like to hear from you, uh, listeners, in the comments on uh, the YouTube video for this episode. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G.com, for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Jung is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And the video version of this episode is available on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device. 
simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. With special thanks to Bob Zanotti, Anthony Peake, Jake Weaver, and to Lana and Lily Wachowski, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.